If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Proverbs chapter 7. Soon we will be reading the first 27 verses, and by first 27 verses, I mean the entire chapter. Uh, If you find verse 28, tell me we've got a bad Bible hanging out there, and we'll get that fixed. So, first 27 verses. Now, as we come to this passage, um, it it's interesting to note how ubiquitous what we're going to be talking about today is. As, as society and civil society becomes less and less civil, uh, especially in America, we are a people who are continually angry and frustrated and willing to point the fingers at others for many of the problems we see. And for the most part, if not almost the entirety of the things that make us most angry and divide us most in this country, these in some way, shape, or form revolve around sex somehow. So whether it's the issues of marriage and divorce or homosexuality and transgenderism, even more downstream issues like abortion, these are foundationally about sex. Abortion, for instance, while not directly about sex and about the image of God being born by these people in the womb, it is a problem that is so great precisely because sex has become unmoored from marriage and procreation. While the issues of sex have not led directly to abortion, and abortion is not first and foremost about that. It is clear that the two are linked together. As part and parcel of our age, even the typical factions are starting to come unraveled. Uh, recently, the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative think tank in Washington, D.C., who upholds what we would consider the traditional ideas of sex and marriage and, and seeks to propagate laws in our country that help to uphold those things, recently had a panel, and they typically do not invite people who do not agree with them on issues into, into these panels, but they did invite three people into this panel that would never have sat on a Heritage Foundation panel before. These three women, at least two of them, were from the Women's Liberation Front, which is a radical, and I do mean a radical, feminist organization, two of which were, were LGBTQ. Okay? And the reason why Heritage invited them was because they see transgenderism as an attack on feminism. After all, if anyone can claim to be a woman, then no one is a woman. And so they see this as a direct attack. So even amongst the people on the left and the the more liberal forms of our society, the misunderstandings of sex are so rampant that everything is starting to fall apart for them. These debates are not going to go away. While we understand that it's wrong to have identity built fully on our understanding and preferences when it comes to sex, we also know that it is quite foundational to who we are. This is shown to some degree by, if nothing else, the beginning of the book of Proverbs, which mentions adultery as Solomon is is helping his son to understand the nature of sex and the importance of how he handles himself in this several times. And just given my Bible sitting open here between the end of Proverbs 4 and Proverbs 7, all of chapter 5 is a warning against um, adultery. The end of chapter 6 is a warning against adultery. The entirety of chapter 7 is a warning against adultery. It is rampant with these warnings and not because it is some sort of secondary issue. Not because it's modern Listen, the problems and the misunderstandings that we have about sex are not modern issues. It didn't start, friends, in the 60s, okay? It started with Adam and Eve, and it continued from there. It is an important thing that we 
come to. As we're studying through the book of Proverbs and we're just kind of gathering the main emphases of the book of Proverbs, we could not do that without looking at the issue of adultery and sex. But as we will find, these are foundational issues, which means they are not just about sex. They are about so much more. And so let us turn to the word of God so we might understand temptation in general and ourselves even better than we do now. First thing we're going to find is that wisdom reveals the folly of the forbidden. Wisdom reveals the folly of the forbidden. Would you read with me the first 27 verses of this wonderful chapter? My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I've looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, Wily of heart, she's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows, so now come, I have come now to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This is the word of our God. Friends, if we would be wise we would realize that wisdom reveals the folly of the forbidden. He begins this particular passage by asking his son, listen to the words that I'm saying. You have to hear what I'm talking about. And he says the whole purpose for this in verse 5 is to keep you from the forbidden woman. It's an interesting word. It's used in several places to talk just about something that is inappropriate or or strange. So in Leviticus 22.10, we read that a lay person, and that lay person there is a strange person. It's somebody who is not meant to be there. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of a priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. It's only for the priests. And so anyone else who eats of it is a forbidden person. They're not allowed to eat of it. Even more important, earlier in Leviticus, Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, 
this famous passage of Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, taking their censers, they put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Strange fire, forbidden fire. Gives you the, the idea that this woman, that this man will be chasing after, that you are to be kept from, this woman is not yours to have. Even the second word that ESV translates adulteress is probably better seen as something else. It's, it's more like a foreigner. It, it, used in other contexts, it would mean somebody who is non-Israelite. In other words, you're not to marry them. But here it likely means simply that she is not yours to have. She is not only forbidden to you, but she is not yours. She is to be kept away from you. You do not own her. You are not married to her. Now, the, the use of the word adulteress, given the context, isn't totally wrong. She clearly has a husband, and therefore she's clearly acting as an adulteress. But honestly, I, I don't think that that, Im, that implies something about the status of this man. And many people, when they read this, they feel like he is the one who is married as well. Listen, this man doesn't need to be married. So if you were worried about this being a sermon for married guys and excluding a good portion of the rest of you, trust me, it is not. This woman has many things written about her, but first, the young man has something written about him. He says, at the window of his house, he's looked out through the lattice and he's seen simple people. He has perceived the youth, a young man lacking sense. Listen, Unlike modern people, the Hebrew people did not think that wisdom lied with young people. Rightly, they saw wisdom lying with old people. For some of you, that's kind of offensive. With older people. I don't know if that's any better. But the older you get, the more wisdom you attain. Because wisdom, as we've already talked about, is, is a factor of learning. It's a factor of education. So the more instruction you gain from your life, the wiser you should be. And so young people were inherently seen as being somewhat foolish and somewhat simple, not because they were dim-witted, but because they didn't have the life that older people might have had. We, in speaking to people today and, and looking around our culture, I don't think that people buy that. I think that they think that young people have this inherent wisdom in and of themselves. I think through almost any Disney movie, the parents are always wrong and the kids are always right. Moana, dad was wrong, Moana's right. Finding Nemo, dad was wrong. The kid was right. Nemo was right. Not only the kid, but a mentally disordered stranger was right and better view of character than dad was. Little Mermaid, dad was wrong. Girl was right. Aladdin, the dad was wrong. The girl was right. And matter of fact, it's not just kids, it's always girls. The girls are always right, okay? That's what Disney wants you to know. And part of that is well taken, gentlemen, but part of it is wrong. There is wisdom in age. There's wisdom in age. And so here, when he talks about this young man, he means that he is foolish. His foolishness is seen, most of all, in placing himself in a bad spot. So when we come to verses 8 and 9, you can read those in such a way that you think that he is going there to find her. But I don't think that makes a lot of sense of the passage, given the way that she comes out to him and tries to seduce him in all the words that she's using. Okay? I think that all it means is he is going along her road. He happens to be on her road. He ought to know better, perhaps, and he is being a bit foolish, perhaps, but it doesn't seem like he is setting out to try and find trouble. But he is foolish in when he is going. And not just that he is going down her street, but also that he's doing it in the twilight. 
Now, clearly there could be something about the fact that people try to hide their sins so they act out at night. This is something that almost everyone does. But given the context here, I don't think it means that they're trying to hide their sin by keeping it in the dark. I think, I think, rather, that this is more to be like the Gospel of John, where light is good and dark is bad. And this, this boy is going out at twilight. He's at the very edge of dark. He is at the very edge of evil. And he can go either way. What does he run into? Well, he runs into this woman. Friends, if nothing else, at the very least, let us talk for a brief moment about the foolishness of placing yourself in a bad situation. There is foolishness there. It doesn't mean that when bad things happen to you, that they are your fault, okay? So if you are robbed in inner city Detroit, that is not your fault. But it is foolish to walk around with a fat wad of 100s and gold jewelry and flash it around, okay? You are asking for trouble, even if that trouble is not necessarily your fault, you're being foolish with it. And this young man seems to be entering into that kind of territory. He is foolishly walking where he knows that he could be tempted and led into trouble. So what of this woman? There are many characteristics we're given about her here. First, she is quite obvious. It says that she's dressed like a prostitute. In other words, she's not trying to hide who she is. And this young man is not being seduced unwillingly or unwittingly. He knows very well what she is, and he knows very well what she is asking for. He's not being hoodwinked, right? And he's not, having, he's not being duped in anything that's going on here. It is quite obvious what she is there for. Secondly, she is available. She makes herself known. She is loud. Her feet don't stay at home. Listen to how she's everywhere. Now she's in the street. Now she's in the market. Everywhere you turn, there she is. And clearly, using the language like that means that this woman is not a particular woman, but more likely generalized temptation. She is symbolic. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. No matter where you go, no matter where you run, there she is. The emphasis is on that now. Now she's here. Now she's there. No matter where you turn, there she is. One of the reasons why I think that it's so foolish for people to think that they can run completely from temptation is we're going to see later this temptation is part and parcel due to the man himself and due to the boy or the young man as he himself gives into the temptation. But the temptation is just everywhere. We read of people in the early part of Christianity running out to the deserts to get away from the temptation in the city. What were they running from? Sure, there, there was temptations in the cities that they might not have had in the desert, but sin follows them. They're not getting away from it. And so we have to be careful with how we're speaking about these kinds of things. You're never going to get fully and totally away from temptation. You're never going to be able to outrun it. You're never going to be able to outmaneuver it. It's always going to be there for you. But that is different than putting yourself in a position where you're face-to-face with it always. We could tell you that getting in your car and driving to this place in the winter and the cold with some roads being bad is inherently dangerous. But that is different than going all evil Knievel and trying to jump over a 65-foot gorge without a helmet on. Not that the helmet's going to help you there. But 
it, it, there's a difference between the two, right? What we're telling you is that she is everywhere. Temptations are everywhere for you. There's no place where you're going to go to get away from them. We don't need more monks. We need people who can resist temptation. She's not just available, but she is bold. She walks up to him and grabs him and kisses him. She flaunts what she wants. And there is no mistake here. When she is dressed the way she's dressed, it implies that perhaps she would be willing to do these kinds of things. But when she grabs him, no longer is it a, a, a possibility, but she is directly targeting him. She is more than that. She's sacrilegious. Look at verses 14 and 15. She says, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you. You see, I, I am now right with God, she says. I'm good. I, I had some vows to pay, but I paid them. I went into the temple. I did my duty. God's okay with me. And so because God's okay with me, now I can dabble a little bit. I, I, can, I can do these things that I want to do. It seems like that's such a, such a foolish thing. It, it just reading it, you're thinking, I don't understand how people could possibly think that way, but I, I kid you not, they do. We had good friends of ours whose father came home one day, 30 years into his marriage, and said, well, I, I'm going to divorce you, and I'm going to go marry, if I can, my secretary who he had been having an affair with for some time. The man had gone around to try and find a church and to try and find pastors who would affirm him in his sin because it was clearly what God wanted because God wants him to be happy and he wasn't happy in his marriage, but this woman makes him happy. That, that is nothing less than saying, I'm okay with God. Jesus paid the, the sacrifice for me. Jesus made me right with God and therefore he wants me to be happy. Friends, he wants you to be holy a lot more than he wants you to be happy. She is sacrilegious. She uses religion as a prop for her sin. But more than that, she's seductive. Verses 16, I've spread my couch with Coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. In other words, she is doing everything she can. Later on, it's going to talk in verse 21 with seductive speech. She persuades him with smooth talk. She compels him. Everything that she can do, she is doing to seduce him, to bring him in. Taste, touch, smell, sight, sound. Everything is there. Make no doubt. All of this is done to seduce him. This is what temptation is trying to do. It appeals to you on a number of different fronts. It's not just how things look, it's how they taste, it's how they sound. All of it is part of what they're trying to do to you. Think back even to the original sin. As Eve looks at the apple, what does she do? She looks at it and she says, well, it's good to eat, it's a delight for the eyes, and it's desired to make one wise. She had all the reasons in the world why it seemed good to her. This is exactly what seduction does. It's trying to make it seem good to you. It's trying to make it seem right to you. It's trying to make it seem lovely to you. She is not just seductive, but she is opportunistic. She says, my husband's gone. There's nothing to fear. He's not coming back soon. He took a big money bag. 
And what's more, she knows the time. At the full moon, we're good until then. So, so we can have the night together. She's opportunistic. Friends, there will always be opportunity when temptation comes for you. There's always opportunity. There's always a chance, you think, that no one's going to find out. And even though God knows, even though God always knows, some of us are much more concerned about people finding out than God finding out. Listen, even if, even if no one else finds out, God still knows. There will be a day when everyone will know the sins that you have done in the dark. This will not help you. They will always make room for opportunity. Even if she is all these things, she is obvious, available, she's bold, she's sacrilegious, she is seductive, and she's opportunistic. She is something else altogether. All of those things could be read, by the way, in a good light. They could be read in a good light. If if you are a bold sinner and you read through this and you cut out verses, uh, let's see, 21 and down, and you just take that middle part, there is plenty of guys who would sign up for that. And they would say, that's exactly the kind of thing that I'm looking for. They would view that as good. So why should we go to Proverbs and why should we listen to wisdom? How is it showing us the folly of this? This seems like everything you could want. And it turns around in verse 21 and says, not only is she all of those things, but she's also a butcher. It says, all at once he gives in and he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Friend, she gives you everything you might want and then she will take your life. Let's be very clear. This taking of your life is not one of those things where it's, oh, well, you might die because the husband comes home or, or you might die because she, she really has it in for you. Listen, she is killing you by giving you what you want. Proverbs sixteen twenty five says what? There's a, man that, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its way leads to death. That's what he is arguing with his son. Listen, listen to wisdom. There's All of this seems good. It seems right. It it appeals to everything in you. It appeals to your pride. She's coming after you, telling you how great you are. It appeals to your senses. It's giving you everything you want. And he says, it leads to your death. Unless you are wise, you will never see that. Unless you are wise, you will never be able to stand up against that. The point is simply this, that temptation for forbidden desires seem good. They are easy, they're omnipresent, and they are appealing. And they are death. Don't be deceived by the way the world does it. There is no free love, no matter what people who grew up in the 60s tell you. It costs you your life. Either you give your life to another in marriage and live out sex through that, or there is no doubt you will die from it. The book of Matthew says something along the exact same lines. It's a different context, but it sounds very, very similar. Matthew 7. Jesus says these words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, 
and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The road is easy, the gate's wide, right? It appeals to you. I need to take a path. I might as well take the easiest one. I might as well take the one that everyone else is going down. It says back in Proverbs, many a victim she has laid low. All of her slain are a mighty throng. There are many who take it, Jesus says, but there's another one. The gate is narrow and the road is hard, but it leads to life. Friends, let wisdom do its work in you and show you the folly of that which is forbidden. Ladies, I want you to be very clear that this text is not just for men. This is like a feminist nightmare because this text basically points at this woman and says the fault is with her. Everything's going, this, it makes this son, this, this boy, seem like he is some sort of backwoods, hillbilly, knuckle-dragging, naive kind of guy who doesn't understand anything that's going on around him and that she is this big bad wolf trying to eat him alive, okay? And I think that that description is partially true, but it's true because of the nature of the way it's written, It's written from a father to a son. So it's natural for him to talk this way. I have no doubt that in Scripture, if God wanted to, he could have this written from a a woman to her daughter, and it would sound exactly the same. Some of the details would be changed. But make no doubt about it. Seduction is not just there. Forbidden love is not just there for men only, but for women as well. And men will use you, and they will abuse you, and the way, no matter how sweet their words are, there is a way of living that will lead to your death. You too must be on guard against this. Furthermore, I would say one more thing. Many of you have had temptations like this in the past, but as you have grown older, those temptations wane. Or some of you are affected more by these sorts of temptations than others. So do these not have importance for you? Indeed, these do have great importance for you. Especially as you get older, many of these difficulties and many of these temptations, as you mature, are lessened. And yet we are instructed in the New Testament to have those older people help to instruct and lead younger people, not only in wisdom, but in experience as well. So Titus 2, 3 through 6, Older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's the whole point. The exact same thing that the, the, the father is doing in the Proverbs 7 is the exact same thing the New Testament says we should all be doing. If these are not the temptations for you and you're thinking, I'm not really led in temptation that way anymore, or I never really have been, that's great. You should use your wisdom to help teach others who aren't there, who do face these temptations, and help lead them. Now, of course, we've been talking about this temptation in somewhat limited terms. There is more to this, though. Because wisdom does not just reveal the folly of the forbidden, but it reveals the location of the lure. It reveals the location of the lure. Why did this young man give in? We read through the text. Why why does he all of a sudden cave? 
Was he just this, as I described, a poor, unwily, backwoods country bumpkin who happens to run into this destroyer of men? Yes, it's true, perhaps. Make no doubt about it. It was his decision to give in. She did all of that work. She laid all of that groundwork, but he still had to give in to her. If you have your Bibles with you, for just a moment, turn it up to the book of James, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, we'll be reading from. I believe that James takes this passage and takes his understanding of this from Proverbs 7. It's the best fit passage for what James would be talking about here. I think that it will help us understand how we are to handle our temptations and how we are to handle this. Because what we've done so far is describe that, if nothing else, what can happen to you is destructive. But what we haven't done is talk to you about how that happens or how to avoid it. So let's begin to do that by looking at James 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured or enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James says very clearly, when you are tempted, you don't get to look up and say, well, God is tempting me. He says, first, God can't be tempted by evil, okay? Which doesn't seem to have anything to do with the context here. Just because God can't be tempted with evil doesn't mean that he can't tempt people with evil, apparently. Well, what James means by God can't be tempted by evil is not that, that it's unlikely that God would be tempted, that, that he is, in a human way of speaking, so pure that any attempts to, to pull him to the right or to the left just don't work. That's not what James means. He means it's, it's like a logical impossibility for God to be tempted by evil. That is, what is evil? Evil is not something that is against a standard that has been set. It's not as though what is good is out there somewhere, a list of things that are good actions to take, and God always does those things. That's not what good is. Good is whatever God does. And what's more, whatever God is. And so God is good. He doesn't just do good things, but he is good. So to be tempted by evil means that he is tempted to do something that is against his will. But you can't do things that are against your will unless you will it. Okay? I know we're getting kind of philosophical on you for a second here, but just hang with me. He cannot act against his will. You cannot act against your will. You always do the things you want to do. And if God only does what is good... Not because it's a set standard, but because he only does what is good. What is good is what he does. He can't be tempted by evil. And because he can't be tempted by evil, his will, therefore, can never be evil for you either. Now, James gets us into a little bit of trouble here because he turns around and says, and God tempts no one. The ESV and other translations are playing Fast and loose with language a little bit to help you understand what's going on here. But that word, tempt, is the exact same word that's used multiple times in Scripture for things that God does do to people. So, for instance, the exact same word in the Septuagint is used in Genesis 22.1, where it says, After these things, God tested 
Abraham when he asked him to offer up his son. So James says, God doesn't test or God doesn't tempt, however you want to translate it. And Genesis says, oh yeah, but, but God tested or God tempted Abraham. So what is James getting at? Well, given the context of James, I think it's fairly simple. He doesn't mean that God won't allow temptation. That's not what he means. He means that when God ordains temptation, he does so in such a way that he doesn't want you to fall. So when the woman in Proverbs 7 is tempting the young man, she is doing so out of the purpose of getting him to fall to her, getting him to sin with her. This is exactly what Satan does. When Satan tempts you, he tempts you to despair. He tempts you to do what is wrong. When God puts a test before you, it's never to get you to do what is wrong. It is to prove that you should do what is right. We have several instances of this kind of thing in the Bible starting with, of course, Abraham. Because Abraham was tested. But what was the purpose of that test? James himself tells us. James 2, 21 through 24. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith, that by the way, that offering up his son on the altar was exactly the temptation that God put before him or the testing that God put before him. So Abraham goes through with the testing. He raises the knife. He's about to kill his only son. He's about to kill the promised son, of which God never said there there would be another son to inherit the promise. Only this son will inherit the promise. And Abraham is willing to go through and to kill him because God has put it before him to do so. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is not justified by works, is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now we don't have time to get into everything that James means by that, but he means at least this. When scripture said that Abram believed, Abraham believed and God justified him and he counted it as righteousness, what he means is Abraham turned around and showed that he actually believed. And he actually believed because he was willing to raise a knife up and kill the son, thinking in the words of Hebrews that God would raise him back from the dead. So why did God test him? According to James, he did it to prove his faith, to demonstrate that his faith was real and true, for you and I. The testing was not to make Abraham fall, but it was for God's own good purposes. First Peter five, excuse me, first Peter one, five through seven. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this salvation you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? He says, it's necessary. It's necessary that you are grieved by trials. God, your father, is grieving you by the difficulties that you are going through in your life. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That praise and glory and honor is not, I don't believe, the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. It is your praise and your glory and your honor because your faith has been tested and it has come out genuine. When God puts various trials and temptations before you, it is not to see you fall. It is to see you have victory over them. So you can't sit back and say, well, God is tempting me and I, who can resist God? 
God is not tempting you so that you might fall. He's testing you to show the genuineness of your faith. So what? So if the temptation doesn't come from God, the question is, where does it come from? In verse 14, James is very clear. It comes from you. You are tempted finally and led astray finally because of the very nature of your heart. What does James say? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The location of the lure for you is not in the woman. It is not in the world. It is in your own evil heart. Listen, he might have been a country bumpkin. He might have been naive, but he wanted to jump in bed. Friend, you can blame all of the circumstances you want to. You can put all of it on the line. You can make all of the excuses that you want to. The end result is sin is not a result of God putting something in front of you that he shouldn't have. Sin is not a result of people in the world pulling you in with them. Your sin is a result of your own evil and wicked desires. But, also notice in James, that that desire is not sin in itself. This passage, as it stands up to this point, does not seem terribly connected to the passage we are reading in Proverbs 7, but here it does, because it uses overtly sexual language to talk about what happens when you are tempted from outside before it becomes sin. And he says very clearly, when it's conceived. Now, I don't have the time, and this is not the venue, to take you through how conception happens, but something's got to happen. Women don't just miraculously show up pregnant, right? There's one case where that happens, but, but beyond that, it just doesn't happen, right? That's why that's a miracle that doesn't happen otherwise. So something has to happen. There has to be an engagement. There has to be interaction somehow. Your temptation and your pull and your desire for that temptation before it becomes sin has to be engaged with somehow. You have to interact with it. You have to uphold it. You have to support it. You've got to engage your mind in it. You've got to engage your body in it somehow before it becomes sin. So notice how well this fits with the passage of Proverbs. He's there. It might be some sort of foolishness, but he is not in danger until he goes in with her. And then conceived is sin, it gives birth, and it grows, and the end is exactly what it is in Proverbs. It is death. Friends, no matter how you have been cursed by the fall, no matter what temptations you have, no matter what proclivities towards sin you have, there is always a way out. And those proclivities to sin will ebb and wane as you go through your life, and one day, Faithfully, God will remove all of them for you and you will be able to stand perfect and never be afraid of being lured away again. But as you stand today, there is always a danger of being lured away, but there's always a battle to be fought and there's always a way for you to escape. Friend, you can be blameless. When you're tempted to be angry, you don't have to give in. When you are tempted to gossip, you don't have to give in. When you are tempted to covet what your neighbor owns, you do not have to give in to that. When you are tempted to lie, you do not have to give in to that. The question then becomes how? What can we do? How do we fight this temptation? And we, of course, listen to wisdom because wisdom reveals the fortitude of faith. 
the strength that faith provides. Simply put, we listen. We listen to what James tells us. We listen to what Proverbs tells us at the very beginning of both of these passages. Listen to what James 1.12 says again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now the question from this is, remain steadfast to what? I think James would simply say, remain steadfast to what God has called you to do. Remain steadfast to the word of God. That you don't fall into temptation. You don't fall into those evil desires. And he says very clearly, if you are able to do that, he will give you a reward. I can't tell you how important that is. Friends, you cannot live your Christian life without, without a selfish position towards reward. It is basic to faith. You have to think that God has better things for you. You have to think that. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you. For the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross. He didn't go just thinking that God was going to curse him and leave him in the grave forever and ever. He went there knowing full well that God would raise him and give him the name that is above every name. Friend, you have to know that God rewards those who are faithful because it is that reward that will allow you to stand under temptation. I have to think, what is best for you? Is it best for you to engage in this thing that seems lovely and kind and good? Or is it better to wait for the very gift of God to come to you? Sin always tries to make itself as appealing as possible, but wisdom knows better. She sees past that sort of fluffy, kind, nice, false facade to the butcher that stands behind waiting to kill you. Trust in the word of God. Even the beginning of this particular passage in Proverbs, listen to how the, the father puts this. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Treasure them. Love my words. Listen to them because they will be reward for you. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. He says, if you keep his commandments, you will live. There are promises there for you. This is how you fight temptation. You fight it by trusting in the word of God. When you are tempted in anger to lash out at people, you remember that Jesus Christ, when reviled, did not revile in return, but he kept his mouth shut and entrusted himself to one who judges justly. When you feel the need to gossip, you remember the word of God that God will bring all things to light, that you don't have to reveal everything that passes by your face on Facebook, that you don't have to continually talk about every single person around you, that God, if it is important enough, will bring it to light on the last day, and what's more, that you are humble enough to accept the fact that you don't need to be the center of attention all the time with that juicy, juicy story. When you feel the pressure of materialism, you are reminded, you are reminded that God will one day take your life from you, and that all of those precious things can hardly be packed into a coffin. And even if they are, you can't take that with you. Naked into the world you came and naked you will leave. What's more, God provides an incredible promise to you that there is an inheritance waiting for you, which is greater than anything that you could possibly hope to take with you. Any of the things that you think you need and want and love in this world, God has better things prepared for you. 
when you feel tempted to lie, trust the word of God. Trust the word of God that there is forgiveness for you. No matter what you've done, lying makes it worse. You have to trust that God's forgiveness will work among his people, that they will uphold you, that it is better to be repentant in your faith than to lie and make God a liar. Trust the word of God. Faith in God's word is a strong defender against sin and temptation. No matter how much you are tempted, trust that God has better things for you. Now, on the outline, I don't just say, wisdom reveals the fortitude of faith. It's not just faith. It's not just believing. It's the faith. The faith, once and for all, handed down to the saints. It's believing in Jesus Christ because only by the work of Christ can we be assured of all the things that I've talked about. We can only be assured of our forgiveness because Christ took his death on a cross as a replacement for our sin. We can only be assured of forgiveness because Christ is our Passover sacrifice so that God will not pour out his anger and his wrath upon us, but he has done so on Jesus Christ. So we are guaranteed not only of an inheritance, not only of better things in the next world, but we are guaranteed of forgiveness here as well. It is Christ who makes our faith such a strong defense, for without him, we would be lost. Friends, All of the promises of God are true and not simply by the power of some abstract faith because you trust. God's promises are true in Jesus Christ. And all of the good things that happen to you, all the good promises of God only come true for those who know and trust in Jesus Christ because we are not acceptable to God the way we are. Our hearts are ill-fit for God. We desire things that are against God. We desire illicit desires and that which is forbidden we run after. We are evil and wicked before him, but Christ has died for our sins and he has given us new life so that those who believe in him would know the power of his resurrection and would know the holiness of God and can one day stand before God in righteousness. So you can trust in the word of God because he has proven it true in Jesus Christ. He has promised forgiveness and he has given it in Christ. He has promised life and he has demonstrated it in Christ. He has promised strength and he has provided it in Christ. Let us hold fast to our faith, not a random faith, not an abstract faith, but our faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, be wise in the world. Fear the Lord and trust his word. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for the work and presence of Christ in our lives. He is a comfort when we fall and strength to keep us from falling. Pray that your spirit would richly dwell in us, Father, that we might always trust your word brought to life through your Son over the calling and the pleading of the world. Help us in this, for we are your bride and you are our God. We ask for these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.